Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you today. I wish my wife could be here, but she was home making egg rolls for a ladies' thing yesterday, so one of us missed out. Okay. <laughs> Amen. So I, I hope you don't mind, but I, I would like to stand on what your preacher just said. A few years ago, uh, we were getting ready to go to Silver State. I was pastoring, then it's been several years ago, in Jerome, Idaho. And um, we had a, a young teenage girl going for the first time. Her grandfather was a member of our church, had been a member of our church for 40 plus years, had been a deacon and a trustee over the years. The day before the bus left for camp, he called me up and he said, Pastor, I want to know if it'd be all right if I went to youth camp. He's 70 years old. I said, sure, John, but uh, I don't have any way to get you there except on the bus. He goes, I'm good with that. We, uh, we chartered a bus. It wasn't old yeller, okay, but we had air conditioning and toilets. and Honestly, mostly so we didn't have to stop for the girls, but that's what we had. And I said, well, John, I'll have to find out if I can find you a place to stay. He said, I already called, talked to Mary Gray. Mary grew up in Jerome. Talked to Mary Gray, and, and she said, there's a room for me. I said, well, okay, come on then. I was preaching that camp that week as well, and I was preaching on the Levitical offerings. It may sound strange to you at youth camp, but boy, God just poured out on that week. But one night, I, it must have been Wednesday night, the invitation takes place, and there are, there are people all over at the altar. And I noticed that, that John, this 70-year-old man, been a member of our church, maybe longer than I've been alive, I don't know, but he was kneeling at the altar right here. And I thought that he was just praying for his granddaughter or for our other kids. That was a habit that we had, of course. And so the invitation went on and went on, and most people left, and John's still praying. And finally... Uh, I turned the invitation over to Brother Jimmy Carter and I went and knelt down next to John and I said, John, is there, I mean, is there something I can do to help you? And he looks at me and he said, uh, Preacher, I've just asked Jesus Christ to save me. So I, I said, what? And he repeated it. And I said, well, praise the Lord, John. I mean, I didn't have any idea you were struggling. I didn't have any idea that there was any doubt in your life. And uh, so we prayed together and we left. The next morning we came to the testimony service and, um, or the prayer meeting, I'm sorry, uh, for the men. And John is there, of course. And I determined not to say anything. I determined that if it was going to be announced, it would be him that announced it. You can ask me why later. I don't have a good reason, but I'll figure something out. <laughs> So Jimmy Carter said, are there any praises? And before that of praises got out of his mouth, John stood up and said, I got saved last night. Amen. So he went home. I wasn't able to be there the following Sunday. I was, uh, I don't know, somewhere preaching, but um, I watched the recording. We had our whole Sunday morning service dedicated to testimonies from camp and then a short message afterwards and often had uh, folks saved and a lot of decisions made because of what they heard God doing and saw. And it was always a little bit of a struggle to find somebody to start it off. You know, nobody wants to be that guy. Except John. 
John stepped up and gave his testimony clear as a bell. And I'm telling you, people all over that church were broken before the Lord. I mean, I really could go on all morning. I remember praying one night. Bill Marshall was preaching up at camp. Took a group of preachers into that overflow area below the, right below the platform, actually, of the tabernacle. And there were uh, five preachers in there. They all had people they were praying for to be saved. And we just prayed for the entire time that Brother Marshall was preaching and, and just poured our hearts out to the Lord. One of them was a preacher from Maryland, a good friend, but he was praying for his oldest daughter to get saved. So when we heard the music start for the invitation, we came upstairs and uh, walked into the back of the tabernacle. And of course, the altars were full as they often are at Silver State. And uh, there over on the side was his wife, this preacher's wife from Maryland, uh, dealing with their oldest daughter, and she got saved that night. Well, she came back, but mom stayed at the altar. And she came back and hugged her dad. And uh, they were rejoicing together, and mom stayed at the altar. She was the last one at the altar, and finally uh, the preacher walks up to her and kneels down next to his wife. He'd been a pastor for 30 years. And he said, honey, are, I mean, are you okay? She said, I've led I don't know how many people to Christ, but I've doubted myself every time. And that night, a pastor's wife of 30 years settled her salvation. There are people sitting all across our churches today that at every invitation say, Lord, if I'm not saved, save me. You ought to stop that. Let me tell you why. Because you can't move forward. You can't grow. You ought to get your salvation rock, solid, settled. So you can grow. Amen? And that means you. That means you. Don't let pride destroy your life. Take your Bible, if you would, and open the book of 1 Kings chapter 3. And I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning in honor of the Word of God, if you would. I don't know what your tradition is, but I know what mine is. So, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says this. And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in high places because there was no house built unto the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and burned incense in high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for there was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. In Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night. And God said, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said, Thou hast showed unto thy servant David my father great mercy, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great kindness that thou hast given him a son to set on his throne as it is this day. And now, O Lord my God, 
Thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this thy so great a people? And the speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, nor hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to discern judgment, Behold, I have done according to thy words, though I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for just all that we've already had the pleasure of experiencing together. Lord, to lift our voices up in song for your glory, to praise your name. We're excited for that opportunity. And Lord, just to fellowship together and uh, the Sunday school hour, the wonderful lesson that was taught here and no doubt around the building. Father, you've already blessed us immensely and we're greatly for it, grateful for it. Just pray you'd work now. It's been a wonderful weekend. You've worked in a way that only you can work. Only you can redeem a soul. We're humbled. We just ask you to do it again. But there are changes that need to be made in our lives. There's comfort that needs to be had by people in this room. God, that we could just that we could just somehow draw nigh to you. We could find all we need in your dear son. I pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for standing this morning. Please be seated. When we pick up chapter three, it's really the, the first, uh, let's say, acts of Solomon when he's officially in the kingdom. Now, Solomon had been anointed to be the king before this. In fact, if you look back into chapter two with me for a moment, it says really in the beginning of chapter two, verse one, now the David, uh, days of David drew nigh that he should die and he charged Solomon his son saying, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong therefore and show thyself a man and keep the charge of the Lord thy God and uh, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses that thou mayest prosper in all that thou doest and whither, whithersoever thou turnest thyself that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me saying, if thy children take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on this throne of Israel. So David is getting ready to die and he charges Solomon. And when you get down to verse 12, it says, then sat Solomon on the throne of David, his father, 
There's a qualifier here, though. It says this, and the kingdom was established greatly. Now, I want you to understand that word greatly there. It doesn't mean like in mega terms. It means um, this mostly. It means it was almost completely established in his hand that the work wasn't completely done, that he was sitting on the throne, that he had the authority of the king, but there were still things that weren't under, let's say, the hand of the king or the control of the king. And the rest of chapter two is about uh, the preparation of Solomon uh, for, the, for the, really the leading of the kingdom. And so uh, I'm not gonna go through all of it, but this is what happens. Lots of people die. I know that sounds weird and cruel, and some of you went like, but these were people who were disloyal to the work of God. These are people who, uh, Joab, for instance, Joab dies in this chapter. Joab didn't have to die, but you should know this about Joab. Joab, Joab may have had heroic moments on the battlefield, but he was no hero in Israel. Joab was a man who had his own agenda, no matter what God's was and no matter what the king's was under God. Joab always had his own agenda. And so uh, when it came to this, David said, you're going to have to deal with Joab. And Solomon dealt with Joab. And Joab still didn't want to be loyal to the work of God. And so he died clinging onto the horns of the altar. And there are others. You remember the guy that threw rocks at David? Remember him? He, uh, he died here too. He wasn't very loyal. I just would say that's obvious if a man throws rocks at the king. <clears throat> There's probably questions about his tenacity in your leadership, right? And so Solomon said to him, okay, you can live, but you have to stay in the city. And he went out of the city, and so he, too, perished. You say, preacher, this is crazy. Why are you talking about this? Well, because I want you to see that, that Solomon, though he sat on the throne, he really didn't have the, he didn't have the weight and the fullness of the, of the authority. There was divisions and schisms within the kingdom. You know that God's people, I mean, uh, listen, how good and how pleasant it is for, uh, for, uh, for brethren to dwell together in unity, right? And there wasn't unity in this kingdom, and Solomon really couldn't move forward until he dealt with those who were dividers, and so uh, we go through chapter two and it says, listen, uh, you know, uh, this person got dealt with and that person got dealt with until you get down to the last verse, verse 46. And if you look at that, it says, so the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Je uh, Jehoiada, uh, and which went out and fell upon him and he died, period. And the kingdom, notice the difference, was established in the hand of Solomon. So we went in verse 12 from greatly established, right? to really all of those that would be divisive within the kingdom and would constantly cause problems uh, being mm, settled, let's say. And now it says the kingdom is established. So it's an accomplished deal. Solomon is now ready to really begin, not that he wasn't the king, but begin to walk uh, in his kingdom with the Lord and lead his people after God. And so that's why when we begin chapter three, it begins to record the events of the early decisions that Solomon made as king. Now, before we look at that, I need you to see one more thing about his preparation. And I want you to hold something here in 1 Kings, and I want you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 17 with me. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Now, sometimes we get the idea that God was taken by surprise when they asked for a king. God was not taken by surprise, amen? In fact, uh, they shouldn't have been taken by surprise. 
Even though they hadn't done it before, God already knew they would. And enshrined in the law of Moses, the covenant by which they lived, were the criteria for a king. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, in, in uh, verse number um, 14, it says, When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are, uh, that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose, one from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother." And so God in the law, Deuteronomy is, is the restating of the law. You know how this works. I, I, I'm just gonna tell you because it's on my brain and then I don't have to keep it there, okay? But you know that the law was given, you know, beginning really in Exodus and the book of Leviticus. That's the, that's the bulk of it. And you know that they came at the end of that time from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea to go into the promised land. And they refused. They were afraid. They were, uh, they were you know, whatever they were. They were afraid. And uh, so they didn't go. And they were judged. Isn't that right? And all the males, 20 years old and above, uh, that, are, uh, that are there, that, are, that came out. God said they're going to die in the wilderness. And for the next 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, and they all died. Those are the people who, as adults, had stood to the covenant of God. You remember that scene, right? At the foot of Mount Sinai where God's voice rumbled from that place and the commandments really were called out by God there. And the people said, we'll be your people and you can be our God. And they had stood to the covenant of God. Well, they're all gone. And so now the second generation, their offspring are getting ready in Deuteronomy to actually go into the land. And Moses gathers them all together and says, I need to make sure you understand this covenant. Because if you don't keep this covenant, you don't get to stay in the land. And so Deuteronomy is a rehearsing, really, of the terms of the covenant or the law that God gave through Moses to those people. And he says, listen, when you get there, at one point, you're going to decide you want a king. And when you decide you want a king, I'm going to choose him. But don't set anyone over you as king who is not an Israelite. Amen? And so the first criteria for a king is that he was an Israelite, that he was from one of the 12 tribes. And we know uh, that really that would ultimately be the tribe of Judah, but it says it right here. Verse 16 says, uh, But he shall not multiply horses unto himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. So God not only established uh, where the king would come from, but he established some boundaries for the activity of the king. And the first one is you're not going to multiply horses unto yourself. Now, some of you might be horse people. I don't know. And you might be saying, is God anti-horse? No. Uh, sorry, but people are weird. And uh, I mean, God created horses. And God's pretty much for his creation. Someone say amen. God is not anti-horse. God is anti-man not being dependent upon God. Because this is about military might. Horses were the great combat multiplier. Some of you will understand that term in this day. Okay, So you can figure that out, right? Men walking with spears, men riding on big horses with spears. Pretty sure the guys on the horses had the advantage. And this is what he said. Look, you're not going to multiply the horses to yourself. And you're not going to cause the people to go back to Egypt to get more. Why? Because what God is saying to him is, listen, this is not about your military might. It is about my power. I'm the warrior God. And I'm the one that fights your battles. 
And so when you have a king, it's not for that king to learn to rely on his strength and to set God aside. It's for that king to deny or to rely upon me and trust me in all of those battles. The next thing he says is this, verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn not away. So he says, don't multiply horses, don't multiply wives. You might think, I don't think that's gonna be a problem for me. But it was for them. But let me explain to you why. Because the idea there was this. The way it worked is when you were, had, let's say, countries around you that you might be in conflict with, you had the king marry a daughter of their king. And the Bible calls that entering into, we read it in chapter three, uh, but uh, entering into a concord or to an alliance, right? He entered into, I'm sorry, I got the wrong verse here. I want to read it to you. Pardon me. Uh, he entered into an agreement uh, with him, and he married affinity. That's the word I'm looking for. And you see it throughout the Old Testament. Jeroboam does it, doesn't he? He enters into affinity with uh, the kingdom or the family of Ahab by marrying a daughter. And so uh, understand that this idea of marriage is not just about the marriage bed being pure and undefiled. What he's talking about here is political power, Okay. And he's saying this, listen, they would build great alliances by intermarrying. And so a king uh, would have a bunch of different wives from different kings and uh, countries of kings so that he would now have alliances of those countries and he would become more powerful. And God said, listen, you're not going to when you have a king. Uh, be reliant upon your ability to build great, uh, great alliances. You're going to be reliant upon me. And I'm going to be the single alliance that you need in your life. Someone say hallelujah to that. That I'm enough for you. And so don't go and uh, get a bunch of wives because it just takes away. They'll turn your heart away is what he said. They also said this in verse 17. He shall not greatly multiply to himself uh, silver and gold. Another boundary. Uh, Don't multiply horses. Don't multiply wives. Don't multiply silver and gold. Well, was God anti-gold? No, pretty sure he's not. But here's what he is. He's anti you dismissing him in, in light of your dependence upon your own personal wealth. And he said, listen, you can't come to the point where you think you no longer need me as God because you've got enough to get by. Hey, that's an American issue, isn't it? We become independent of God because we're dependent upon the almighty dollar. I'm not being ugly. I spend dollars too. I'm just telling you that you better watch out. We are a kingdom of priests and kings unto our God. And so he set these boundaries and said you can't go outside of these boundaries because they're all about keeping God in his place. Is everybody with me here? So he says one more thing in verse 18. It says, and it shall be when he setteth upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, one of, pardon me, out of that, which is before the priests, the Levites. And so he says, look, you can't multiply horses, you can't multiply wives, you can't uh, multiply gold, that's with the boundaries, but you're gonna do this. You're gonna take the, this book that's before the priests and the Levites. What's that book? Well, it's the first five books of your Bible. It's the words of the law or the book of the law that's referenced all throughout uh, Exodus and Leviticus. And you're gonna take this book and what it has is the terms of the covenant of God or the law, that's what we call it. The law is really the covenant of Moses between God and the people. And he says, you're gonna take that book and you're gonna write it out by your own hand. So the king had to sit down uh, and go, uh, in the beginning, God created. But there was a purpose. 
And it says it here, verse 19. And it shall be with him, what? The book. And he shall read therein all the days of his life. I hope you're reading all the days of your life. And, uh, and that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes and to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Now go back to 1 Kings chapter three. So I'll review. I don't want to lose you in the weeds. <clears throat> From sometime at the beginning of chapter two to the end of it, Solomon not only deals with all those that are causing division, but he also takes and sets down with a copy of the law and writes it out by hand. Now, it says that he can have it with him and read it daily and live by it. Amen? But I also want you to know this, when you take time to write the scripture, not as the author, but as a copier, you get to know it much better. Yeah. Let me help you with this. Have you ever been reading your Bible in the morning? And you're reading along, and you're reading along. <laughs> and it's time to go to work, and you don't have a clue what you read. Try that when you're writing. You have a line across the page. It just focuses you on the word of God. Your mind can't be other places. And so when the king sat down and did this, it's so that as he led the people and walked in his life, he could walk according to the law or the covenant of God. And that he could thereby lead them to honor God. And that they would be in a right place, dependent upon God, not dependent upon all, all this stuff. That's what Solomon did in chapter 2. So that means by the time we get to chapter three where we read and where we'll spend most of the next few minutes, um, uh, listen, he, he should have been uh, walking very clearly in this book, right? Really, could we say this? No excuses. He had the knowledge. And so verse one of chapter three says, uh, Solomon is now the king. It's fully established in his hands. Verse one, and Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Okay, can you hear the screeching tires right now? You can't just read that and not say, what on earth just happened? Because here's a guy who just wrote out the law of God and you read it with your own eyes that thou shalt not multiply. Not only that, it says in, a, in another chapter that you won't take wives of, um, of heathen nations that your heart turned not away. And Solomon's doing both. Well, wait a minute. King chosen by God has the word of God First recorded official deed, break the law. Why would he do that? I'll tell you why. Because what Solomon did was exempt himself from obedience to the law. He made an exception for Solomon. It might have sounded something like this. I know, but I can handle it. My heart won't turn away. So he's looking straight at God through the word 
has a straight path to follow and says, you know, it's okay if I walk right next to that path because I can handle it. The first recorded act of Solomon is really to disobey the word of God. Look at verse two. It says only, that word doesn't mean like there's only one, like, you know, when you have a really good dessert and you get to the end of the line and they say, sorry, there was only one left and we gave it to the guy in front of you. It's not, sorry, it happens. It's not that only. This only means accept, right? And so it says this, listen, uh, you know, there, there he is in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem roundabout, he built all that. Only there's something going on that shouldn't be going on. The people, it says, sacrificed in high places because there was no house built under the name of the Lord until those days. So here's Solomon setting his king and he's supposed to be leading them according to the book of the law of, of the Lord. But you should know this, that that book says that um, you're only to sacrifice in the place where God has chosen, chosen mm, to place his name. So you don't get to just go like walking across the countryside and go like, I feel like I got some sins to handle here today. Here's a sacrifice to God. No, no, no. You have to go to the place where God has chosen to place his name. But look what it says in verse two. They said this, oh, we're free. God hasn't done that. It says in those days there was no uh, place built, right? There was no temple that was built uh, to, uh, for them to go to. I want to read it exactly here. It says in those days there was no house built under the name of the Lord uh, until those days. And so they, here's what they did. Solomon now, again, exempts obedience to the law, doesn't he? Only this time, this is very familiar to us, he does it with an excuse. Okay, it's okay if you don't go worship God at the temple. It didn't exist yet, but it's okay if you worship in the high places because the temple's not there. But this is what it says there. There is no house. It's an excuse. You know what else it is? It's a lie. Let me help you. Solomon's father, this is time for you to answer this question. Solomon's father is? Good. David wrote the 122nd Psalm. The 122nd Psalm starts this way. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go to the house of the Lord. If David was Solomon's father, and there was a house established then, when Solomon the son is the king, there's a house. This is an excuse with a lie. And that's what happens when you begin to exempt yourself from obedience to God. You begin to make excuses to it, and that's what Solomon did. Look at verse three. It says, and Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the ways, and walking in the statutes of David his father, only, same word, except he sacrificed in the high places and burnt incense in the high places. So here's Solomon exempting himself again. Three verses, three defined acts at the beginning of his reign, and in every one of them, Solomon makes an exception for himself and through himself for his people to obedience to God. Did Solomon not know the law? Solomon knew the law, amen. Solomon had a copy. And yet the first three acts are disobedience to God. Let me say something to you. 
Um, this is just choices on Solomon's part, isn't it? So I want you to get this down. Everybody walks on a, a path. That's all there is to it. There are really only two. You think there are 360. There are really only two. God's way and not God's way. Straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth to life. Broad is the way that leadeth to destruction. Two paths. But everybody walks on a path. And it's not just the fact that I have been saved. That Look, I can be saved and I can be walking on the wrong path. Solomon here is clearly in a covenant relationship with God as an Israelite. But yet he is walking on the wrong path. So understand this. Everybody walks on a path. You walk on a path. And the thing about it is, is that you get to choose what path. That every day of your life, with every decision that you make, you're choosing whether you're walking on God's path or on some other path that you may make excuses for or you may have all sorts of excuses, I guess, for walking on, but it's not God's. Everybody chooses the path they walk on in life. Amen? So Solomon goes to Gibeon, and Gibeon is the great high place. And there uh, Solomon offers a thousand burnt offerings. Now, Gibeon is still a high place. It's the great high place. Solomon still didn't belong offering sacrifices there. And yet he goes up there and he offers a thousand burnt offerings, it says, and that uh, after all of that was over, that apparently, um, that apparently tired him out because in verse five, Solomon goes to sleep and God appears to him in a dream. And the dream is really simple and I know that you all know it. God says, tell me what you want. Tell me what you need. And Solomon says, well, the truth is, God, you've been good to my father and you've put me on the throne, but I don't know anything about how to be a king. That's not exactly true. He had the whole book. But I don't know anything about how to be a king. And, and what I really want from you is just understanding and discernment to be able to lead your people. They're great people. This is a big job. And I just want to do it your way. And God said, well, you know what? Because you ask for wisdom and understanding instead of riches and victory over your enemies, I'm going to give you great wisdom. I'm going to give you wisdom greater than any before you and any that came after you. And I'm also going to allow you to be very wealthy, uh, unlike any that came before you and came after you. And so Solomon uh, wakes up. And Solomon, look at what it says, that Solomon came out of his dream. And, uh, and uh, it says, behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. So Solomon has this encounter in a dream with God. You say, preacher, is that real? No, it's real. Okay, God in uh, times past, in various sundry times and ways, right, uh, communicated to men, and here he's speaking to Solomon. And he says, listen, Solomon, uh, tell me what you need to be the king. And Solomon had a right thinking and right heart, amen? And he said, I need wisdom, I need understanding, I need discernment. And God said, I'll give you that, and I'll give you this also. We skipped a verse, did you notice what it says? It's right before he woke up. He also issues a warning and says, if you'll walk in my ways and if you'll keep my commandments, then you'll prosper this way like I've promised. Let me tell you what happened to Solomon. He wakes up out of that dream and he recognizes that there is a house to God and that's in Jerusalem. 
And that was established when David brought the ark in there in about the eighth or tenth year of his reign. And there he established an altar, and that was the place that God had chosen to put his name. And so Solomon recognized it. And he ran back there, and he offered all of those sacrifices over again, and he offered peace offerings, and he established a feast or held a feast for his servants. You know what we call that? This is a good thing. We call that an aha moment, amen? Solomon, in this time with God, had a moment that he went like, oh, I'm going on the wrong path. And what I want to walk on is the right path. He had an aha moment. Hey, can I say this? You need one in your life. Well, let me rephrase that. You need many in your life. No, it's how, you know, God's when God gets your attention. If you've only had God get your attention once, you better make sure he got it then. I mean, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. If God ever got your attention to begin with, he'd be getting it again, right? Unless you happen to be Jesus and haven't walked outside of the... You're not. So Solomon has this moment where he says this. Oh, man, God, I need to walk on your path. And he wakes up and he goes and he begins that walk. So... You say, preacher, that's great. I agree. Amen. How many of you are glad when people get right with God? Amen. How many of you are gladder when it's you? Amen. Okay, just making sure. So it appears like, man, everything's good with Solomon. Before I tell you the rest of the story, let me tell you this. See, not only are, does everybody get to choose a path, but... You can choose to try to walk on two paths at once. And it will be workable for a while. And that's what Solomon did from the very beginning. Got the law of God, says he loves the Lord and walks in the way of his father David only. So everybody gets to choose the path. Please hear me. And you can choose in your life to try to walk on two paths. God's and some other. And for a while... It will look good. It will. You can pull it off for a while. Some people pull it off for a long time. But if we follow the rest of Solomon's life, to me it's very interesting because he had this aha moment before God and he went back and he, and he, uh, and he offered all of these sacrifices and you and I, let's just say, we're taking the bird's eye view and we're looking in at Solomon and we're saying this, man, whoo, boy, that's great what God did in Solomon's life. And so the next thing that we really read about is that Solomon, we're not gonna read it, I'm gonna skip over a few things with you, but uh, Solomon uh, has these two women come before him. You remember that? And there's a one uh, dead baby, one living baby. They're arguing over the living baby. And, uh, and Solomon executes really the wisdom of God, doesn't he? I mean, people still, lost people reference this act as an act of great wisdom, right? And so you look at this and say, wow, man, Solomon is on the right path. He's, he's going to town. He, he got right at Gibeon. He had an aha moment. And from that day forward, he's just following the Lord. Someone say hallelujah. And he spends the next 20 years building he spends seven years building the temple of God. And it's phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's, it's so great that when they build the second temple in the book of Ezra, when they get the foundation laid, the people who'd seen the first temple saw this one and they started crying. And they said, this thing is so puny. 
Solomon built this phenomenal temple for the glory of God. And you look at Solomon's life and you say, wow, look at that boy serve the Lord. I mean, he is really going. He's got, he's got great things going on. He spends 13 more years building his own palace, establishing really and strengthening the seat of government for the people of God and the nation of Israel. And all we read about is all that, God, that Solomon did, that he built all of these things, spent 20 years doing it. And, and from that moment, that aha moment, he, he executes or lives the wisdom. And then he begins uh, in wisdom to, to build and to do all these wonderful things in the city of God where God had chosen to place his name. He builds a house of God. He builds a palace for the, for the king under God. He does all of these things. You get to chapter 8, and Solomon leads a great worship. You know, he, he, he uh, has, I'm not going to read all 66 verses of the, of the thing, but, but he uh, brings the people together and has completed some building, and, and he prays with them before God and, and uh, leads them, and God's glory fills the place. I mean, listen, the, the ark was put in the temple in chapter 8. God's glory filled the temple. The people were rejoicing. Everybody, I mean, it was all about God. Everybody was good. God was being magnified. The glory of God was so thick in the temple that people, they had to run out of there. They couldn't stay in there. I mean, you just have to see that. And I'm no Southerner, but you'd have to say like, you, that's good stuff, amen. That's how you do that. If you start running the altars, we're gonna, or the aisles, we're gonna tackle you and set you back down. And you gotta look at Solomon's life and say, yes, yes. funny though because during that time God warned Solomon again in fact in chapter 9 where it ought to really be like this great great thing we had all this great worship and they're concluding things in verse 4 of chapter 9 it says this that God came to him and said and what if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee and will keep my statutes and my judgments. Then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever as I promised unto David, to David thy father, saying, there shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? That you're sitting here and we're looking in on Solomon's life. And we get through chapter, uh, you know, uh, three, and he has this aha moment. And, and boy, from that moment on, we're, you know, into, through chapter eight and into chapter nine. And all you see is Solomon walking on a path, uh, doing the works of God, doing them for the glory of God. But yet in the midst of that, uh, really, as it begins to draw to an end and Solomon's going to be there, God steps in again and says, hey, Solomon, right here, boy. I mean, I don't know about you, but that seems weird to me. I, I mean, I, I raised three children. Well, my wife and I, she probably did the better part, but I did the hard part. I don't ever remember saying to them when they were doing great and obeying and doing what they should be doing, now you better watch out. I don't ever remember saying that to them. I remember when they were obviously following what they should be following and, and being who they should be. That was big for us, right? Not just what you do, but who you are. But I remember when they were there, I'd be saying, yeah, keep it going. Yeah, that's my boy. You know, when he got out of line, it was mom's boy, but, you know. <laughs> Why would God step in here? 
and say, hey, great temple, man, wonderful palace, focus. I mean, we all get to choose our path. Solomon had obviously chosen a path. 20 years, we can look at it all. We've got the big view of all of it. I mean, you can't read through chapter, you know, five, six, seven, eight, you know, and say anything but wow, 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 glory to God. Why in chapter nine? Let me tell you why. Because in spite of all of that, the thread of his exceptions to obedience still remained in his life. Watch this. Look at chapter 9 and verse 10. It says, And it came to pass at the end of 20 years when Solomon had uh, built the two houses and the house the king of the Lord, that's, uh, that part is over. I'm sorry, go to verse 24. But Pharaoh's daughter came up out of the city of David unto her house, which Solomon had built for her. Then did he build Milo. Let me read that with you again, see if you can find it. But Pharaoh's daughter. You remember the first exception to obedience that Solomon made for himself? It was to join an affinity with Pharaoh by marrying Pharaoh's daughter. And, and Solomon had no business ever being married to the daughter of Pharaoh. He should have corrected that from the beginning. You go, preacher? Some of you are going to get your chest all bowed out today. <laughs> we don't believe in divorce around here. I'm with you. But I don't live under the covenant of Moses. Because here's what we know from the word of God. That when people were getting right with God and they had intermarried, they had to put away their strange wives. No, no, read the book of Ezra. Read the book of Nehemiah. Read the book of Haggai. Don't judge what they did there by what you and I understand about divorce and remarriage today. This was a, a different dispensation, okay? God didn't change. He dealt with some things differently. And it was their necessity in order, just like you, when you sin, you can't, uh, you can't come get over that sin by a little bit of counseling and say, I feel better. You've got to get the sin out of your life, yeah. Right? And so Solomon needed to put that woman away. I'm not saying that in any wrong way. I'm just telling you that in order for him to truly have had an aha moment, that lady couldn't have been there. And so even there was all of that phenomenal stuff going on, there is still the threat of Solomon's exemption of where he said this, well, everybody else needs to go by this, but I don't need to go by this. Let me tell you how bad it is. Solomon recognizes that that not only should he not be married, but that this was an unholy act. You can go to a parallel passage if you'd like to, up in the book of uh, First Chronicles. In First Chronicles chapter number 8, verse number 11, it says this, And Solomon brought up the daughter of Pharaoh out of the city of David, it's a parallel, unto the house that he had not built for her. And he said, My wife shall not dwell in the house of David, king of Israel, because the places are holy whereunto the ark of the Lord hath come. Wow. He looked straight at his wife and said, you don't belong in my life. And so you don't get to be in the, around the holy things of God. So go live in the forest palace. I'm going to keep you, but you don't get to be involved in this. The threat of exception. 20 plus years later, 
that exemption to obedience that Solomon had made for himself was still lingering in his life. Remember what I told you. Everybody chooses the path that they walk on in life. And you can choose two paths. And you can make it look real good for a while. Now go back to 1 Kings if you're not already there. Because here's the third thing I want you to know, and I want you to get this clearly. When you try to walk on two paths in your life, the exceptions will ultimately become the rule of your life. That thing that you're trying to keep hidden will ultimately rule over you. The thing that you're trying to split between God and it in your life, you know you're disobeying God, but you cover it up, you know, because you don't want to let it go, it will ultimately become the master. Say, why would that be? Well, the fact that you've kept it in disobedience to God on purpose means this, that you love it more than you love him. The exception will become the rule. Let me show you. Go to 1 Kings chapter 11. Because this thing just now gets serious. Verse 11, or verse 1 of chapter 11 says, But King Solomon loved what? Many strange women. You know that thing he started with? Not only did it exist, but over those years it was growing in him. He loved many strange women. Uh, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn your heart uh, after their gods, uh, heart, oh, turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. What did I just tell you? That when you try to walk on two paths, that one that's exception to obedience will ultimately become the rule of your life because you're going to cleave to it in love. You know what happens in your life? You love that sin and you see it as a duty and a burden to serve God. And so you're looking at Solomon's life and you're saying, wow. But the truth is, is that his life is about to be turned upside down because the exception is becoming the rule. He had hidden it for a long time. I mean, come on, let's read a little bit more together. This is just getting ugly right here. It says, verse three, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and uh-oh, and his wives turned away his heart. Sure enough, who'd have thunk it? God was absolutely right. Tragically so. For it came to pass, when Solomon was old, that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon, I'm going to emphasize these words, for Solomon went after Ashtaroth. There is a difference between something coming to you and you pursuing something. It had become the ruler of his life. He went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord, listen to this, and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. Then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for 
all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. And the Lord was very was angry with Solomon, because his heart was turned away from the Lord God of Israel, which appeared unto him twice. We saw both of those. And he commanded him concerning the thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he kept that which the Lord uh, kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and I will give it to thy servants. A lot of ground. We covered a lot of ground. And you might sit here to say today and say, Yeah, but I'm not a king. I've only got one wife. And um, she's more spiritual than I am. I don't know. And that's beside the point. Because here's the point. Every one of us has the word of God. It's the light and lamp unto our feet and path. And we come and we hear it preached and we study it and we read it and we meditate upon it. And we claim of it that it both changes and rules our life. And yet we walk along and we come to things in life and we say, I'd sure like to, sure like to have that. I know that's, I mean, I know it's not exactly what God says, but I mean, these are the, these are the 2020s. I mean, the Bible was written like, I mean, goodness, a long time ago. I mean, probably if I understood it in the original languages, I would know that it didn't really mean what it's saying, so we start walking two paths. Why? We just made an exception for ourselves. Sometimes the exception looks like this. I think Solomon did this. Nobody's ever going to know. I mean, Solomon's the most powerful man around. Excuse me, king, we'd like to inspect your harem. Nobody's going to do that. He had no accountability to his peers that he felt. So you begin to walk two paths. And people look at you and go, man of God. Wow, it's great to see what God's doing in your life. But you know that there are really two paths. But you're making it look good. In fact, you become the master at making it look good. You're so good at it, Hollywood would be knocking if they only knew about your sin. Because you're looking over here like all that in a bag of chips, and, and yet your life is really two. And you walk down that path, and you think to yourself, I got this. And then God exposes it. A youth pastor very dear to us seemed to have everything all together. Youth group moving forward, sweet family. Everything seemed to be right. You'd look at him and say, and then one day, he was found to be in a two-year physical relationship with a woman in his church. When he was exposed, he was brought in, of course. His wife was in there, the deacons, the pastor. The deacon said to him, 
listen, this can't go on, obviously. We want to help you. Tell us what you want to do with your life. This was his response. I love my ministry. I love my girls. One of the deacons looked at him and says, what about your wife? And he said, I love and named the other woman. So today, of course, he's out of the ministry long ago now. His family's broken in pieces. Nothing's impossible with God. But you see, God's not going to turn your heart. God's not going to choose your path. He gave you a book to do that by. He gave you a preacher to help you do it. So why did that family end up in ruins? You know that last year my wife and I in a part of our ministry, which is becoming bigger all the time, of helping churches that are in trouble. and We dealt with six cases exactly like this. We went in and spent months in one church just trying to heal the people and help them move forward. I don't look down my nose. See, I have to choose a path every day too. And, and I would say, with the writer, there before the grace of God go I. You can say that will never be you. I'm just telling you that when you're trying to walk two paths, it might be something else. It may not be that this moment you're involved in something like that. It could be something entirely different. It doesn't really matter what it is. When you decide to exempt yourself to any measure from obedience to God's word, that puts you walking on two paths. And you can do that for a while. And you're going to look like you got your life together. And then your kids will be going to sleep at night without their dad. Or whatever. Because it has become the ruler of your life. Now, if we're honest today, there are places in every one of our lives where we are not zealously obedient to God. It could be in our thought lives. We talked about this yesterday. And you could be doing things inside your mind that if anyone knew about them, they'd be not only embarrassed, but disgusted. You could be doing things online. You could be doing, I mean, listen, I'm telling you this. I use the internet. I hate the internet. Because it has been used too often. The internet's not the problem, but people have used it too often to walk two paths. I don't know where it is in your life. It may not be a big moral issue. It may just be walking in obedience to God. I can almost guarantee you, if we're honest about it today, that many of us, if not all of us in this room, could say, well, I mostly follow God with my life. And I love the Lord. But... There is this. 
pray you'd listen to me today. This will be your master. It will destroy your testimony, sometimes your church, your family, the glory of God from your life. This will be your master if it doesn't get completely eliminated from your life. Hear me. Completely eliminated. It will be your master. Well, Pitcher, what do I do? I'll tell you what to do. Repent. Uh, Repentance is not just saying, you're right, God, I'm wrong. No, no, no. Repentance is where you recognize. I mean, just read 2 Corinthians 7, would you? Yea, what zeal. Yea, what carefulness. It's where you have this sin and you recognize it. In fact, let me say this. Step one is to acknowledge it. Right now, right now, your life, don't say it to me, don't say it to your neighbor, say it between you and God. There is, if there is, this thing that doesn't belong in my life. And I'm an exception for myself, and I'm walking two paths, but I know this is going to become my master. I'll just take some time right now and do that. And then you ought to hate it. Right now you love it. You have to choose that it's so disgusting, so distasteful, so unworthy of the one who redeemed you in your life, so spotting of his garments that have been put on you that you want to jettison it out of your life. You want to destroy it from your life. You want to kill it in your life. You can't stand another moment of this thing that even nobody knows about in your life. You can't stand it in your mind. You can't stand it on your phone. I mean, you just, you just, you just can't stand it any longer. Pardon me if you got a shower, but I brushed. Uh, <laughs> Because that's repentance. No, no, hear me. You need to be honest and acknowledge it. And you need to get on your face today and ask God to to help you hate it as much as he does. And to see the damage it's causing to his glory in your life. Repent. Acknowledge. Repent. And I'm going to give you one more that you ought to do before you leave this building. And that is that you need accountability in your life. Because this thing has been hidden in your life so long that your thought patterns and your practices are all established around keeping this sin hidden. And you need somebody, not one who's walking in it with you, but someone like your pastor or someone who you know that you hold each other accountable. See, Solomon didn't allow that. And his sin ruled his life. Exceptions to obedience will become your master. In fact, for some of us, the exceptions to obedience already are our master. We're waiting to get out of here so we can engage that. Today you should acknowledge it. Today you should turn to Christ full frontal and repent. And today, in humility and brokenness, you should ask somebody you know will hold you accountable to not only pray with you as you might pray 
in repentance, but to walk the next steps with you and hold you accountable. Tell them what the exception is and beg them to hold you accountable for it. Preacher, I think I can handle it. Right. <laughs> Did you really say that? The wisest man that ever lived couldn't handle it. You can't. Acknowledge it, repent, and get accountability. Stand with me. This moment is the moment of decision about the path of your life. There are things in your life that don't belong in your life, and you know they don't belong in your life, and you know it from the Word of God. And you've made exceptions for yourself. Now would be the time to acknowledge it before God. Now would be the time to get on your face in brokenness and beg God to move. There's an altar for you. If you need help today, somebody will help you. You need somebody to pray with, come and ask. Don't come up here and pray a couple of words and say, I think I've got it. No, 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 no. It's far more than that. Acknowledgement and repentance, brokenness, accountability is needed in your life tonight, today. I beg you to ask someone to walk with you. I beg you to ask God to rip that thing out of your life. And I beg you to hate the sin so much that you can't imagine it damaging your family any longer. You're God. Father, help us, I pray. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.